So Acts 22, 1 to 21. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of, of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. At noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Paul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all the people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, it's always good to cite your sources, so I think it's uh, right that from the get-go I acknowledge that uh, the sermon this morning uh, is deeply indebted uh, to a chapter in a book uh, called God of All Things by a guy called Andrew Wilson, so just citing my sources for the record. Well, one of the adjustments that Sarah and Marco will soon have to make for life with little Daniel is a heightening of the awareness of where he is at any point in time. At the moment, they can rest assured that unless a sneaky grandma has come and whisked him away, they can be rest assured that where Daniel is right now is just where they last left Daniel. That is, he's rather immobile. Put him down and he might laugh, might cry, might grimace, might wriggle, might fill his nappy, might projectile vomit. His fluids might be going somewhere. 
but he is not. That will change pretty soon, though. First, there's the bum shuffle. Then there's the wounded soldier, the army crawl, the reverse army crawl, and then finally comes the crawling, the tottering, the toddling, the stumbling, the walking, and then the running. And that process signals the beginning of the end for Sarah and Marco. Because for the next, I don't know, 60 or so years, especially for boys, mum and dad will be constantly worried about where Daniel is, what he's got up to, what he's got into, and perhaps what he's fallen out of. Of uh, my wife Mandy and I, of our four kids, the most likely one to cause mischief, disaster, and an international event was, and probably still is, our second-born, Jemima. During her early days in the family, the amount of time she almost bum-shuffled her way to oblivion is nearly countless. And there was one thing, one thing in particular that Jemima most often died from, in, and of. Regular old H2O. She loved water in a bottle, water in a cup, in a sink, but particularly she loved large bodies of water. And if you were ever foolish enough to take little Jemima to the river or to the ocean then like a bee to a honeypot, like a young Marco Marcello to a discount voucher, Jemima was compulsively drawn. She would shuffle, scramble, scream until she got to that water's edge. But that was never enough for little old J-Bot. She had to crawl into the water, whether the water was still or raging salt or fresh. She needed to be immersed in it even though it took her another four years to learn how to swim. In short, Jemima had a love affair with that most ubiquitous of liquids, that most universal of solvents, water. And while she is an odd case, for a bunch of reasons if you met Jemima, nonetheless, we humans do share that same love affair with H2O. And not only because life without it would cease, but also because of its almost mystical properties. Uh, the- theologian Peter Lightheart says this, Water is just H2O, but it fills our senses. Brooks burble, rain plops and patters, tides roar in and out, and water sounds send us to sleep. The sun pinks the morning clouds, purples them at evening, and shows off by turning them into coloured bows. Is there anything so refreshing as a warm bath, a dip in the pool, a glass of iced water on a sweltering afternoon? Rhyme glorifies spider webs, and snow sparkles the dingiest landscapes. Does anything smell of life like soil soaked with spring showers or the dank, dark sea? Arid lands are barren wombs without the seed of rain, and the water cycle regulates our weather. The living world is a partnership between biological molecules and water. Without the right water in the right proportions, earth would be still formless and void. God demonstrates his goodness with a lavish gift of water. 
You might be thinking, of course, the theologian gets carried away. Well, hear what the great scientist Michael Faraday said. Water is to me, I confess, a phenomenon which continually awakens new feelings of wonder as often as I view it. Water is a little miracle, no doubt about it, and yet it is essential, no life without it. And every day we feel and see our need for it in a million, multitude different ways. But I think we feel our need for water most acutely, most severely and intensely in, in two areas. In the area of drinking and the area of cleaning. For slaking thirst and removing dirt, for moistening throat and cleansing skin. And here's my little kind of pitch for this morning. I think in these two areas, drinking and cleaning, water reflects, mirrors, gives us a window into the human need for God. Our need for water, for drinking and cleansing, points to our need for God. Let's begin with drinking. We are, from cradle to grave, thirsty creatures, from baby's first gulp of colostrum-heavy mother's milk to the final moistening of the throat before death's croak. We need H2O. Although we live in such a modern world, so accessible to fresh water, that in the West we only become aware of our need acutely in rare circumstance. Perhaps it's when we exert ourselves at the spin class but forgot our pump bottle on the kitchen bench. Or maybe on the Bibbulmun track when we've underestimated how much water we would need before the next stop. And I'm sure we all, although perhaps rarely experienced, the experience sticks with us, doesn't it? The cardboard mouth, the the stick-like tongue, the thumping in your temples, the endless fantasies about encountering a river, a brook, you'll settle for a stream or even a fellow better-prepared traveller. Perhaps more than any other desire, thirst creates obsession. The realisation that for all our strengths and abilities, we cannot live without water. And in the right, or perhaps I should say the wrong circumstances, we'll do anything to get it. That feeling of desperation and need and thirst is how King David, who is the most celebrated poet king of the Scriptures, that's how he describes his longing for God himself. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is a a visceral image, a vivid one, and it's made more legitimate, more authentic by the fact that he's writing this as he's on the run, hiding in the wilderness, in the desert. And at least one occasion, he almost dies of thirst. And yet, made even more spectacular by the next words he says, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. David is saying, I might be the anointed king, I might have commanded armies, slain giants, have more wealth and status than you could ever imagine, but I cannot live without you, my God. 
Nothing will satisfy me. I'm like a camel seeking an oasis, a deer panting for the water. Now, I don't know how Daniel's experience just described. I don't know how that resonates, how that reflects with your life. My guess is it feels a bit distant. My guess is that very few of us see our need for God with the clarity of King David. You see, our vision tends to be drawn to different objects rather than God. You see, in fact, I would say that our need for God and of God is mistaken for other things. Other things that we attempt to fill the void in our souls with. It might be a claim to sit above your peers. It might be wealth and acquisition. It might be that longing for a father's love that we never felt, a mother's care that has long neglected us. It might be a child's achievement in place of our own. We might seek for that meaning in sexual fulfillment, in career advancement, in wealth accumulation. But David knows, because he's experienced all these things to a degree none of us will ever, he knows that they are, all that constellation of things that our world runs after, they are half-baked substitutes. They are cheap knockoffs. They pretend to fill the hole, but they never can. And, and just reflect on our world, a world that has never had so much material prosperity as it does right now at this moment. And yet we live in a world plagued by anxiety. Because like hamsters on that wheel, we run saying the next thing and the next thing and the next thing will make us better and the next time we'll be filled and the next time we'll be satisfied. But deep down, you've got to know that's just a lie, right? You've got to know that this next thing is just like that last thing. All that excitement when you tracked it, when you unpacked it. And the next day, it's just a scratch that needs itching again. You see, seeking ultimate meaning outside of God is futile, and yet it is a futility common to all, including God's own people. As Mitch read earlier, the prophet Jeremiah says this, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You see, Israel had the direct access to God, the source of life, and yet they despised it. But instead of going to the fountain, they chased the wind. They tried to bottle the mist while streams gushed before them. And it's a theme that Jesus picks up in his ministry. In a very famous scene in John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters a marginalized and rejected woman at a well. A, a woman that we can tell through the dialogue has sought meaning and significance through sexual encounters, but they've left her dry, hollow, and rejected. Like a used juice box tossed in the trash, life sucked from her. And Jesus says this to that woman, 
Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, I'm offering no counterfeit, no fakie here. This is the real deal, soul-quenching satisfaction. Now, I don't know what you think about that. You could be fully on board with Team Jesus, and this is, this is kind of mother's milk and apple pie. You kind of know this. Or you could be a skeptic. You might doubt that claim. You might consider it false or at least misleading. But let me put this question to you if that's your position right now. I'll ask you, after pursuing all that the world has offered you, what taste has that left in your mouth? Are you rested? Do you sit there contented, satisfied, whole? Or are you anxious? Does below your surface sea, to the depths of your soul, foam and royal, is your heart like a storm-tossed canoe? Marco and Sarah know the truth. They know that Christ alone will fill little Daniel up. That Christ alone will give him the love, the affirmation, the safety and the security he needs to flourish. Now, don't misunderstand me. It will primarily, in the early days, be a love mediated and demonstrated by them. It will be their words of encouragement, their kisses of their lips, hugs from their heart, Bible stories from their tongue, food from their cupboard, money from their wallet, band-aids from their drawer, wisdom from their mouths. But what will give Sarah and Marco the resources to love Daniel deeply and constantly? To be patient, to be kind, to be gentle, to push him when he needs, but not beyond. To be the non-anxious presence that he requires. They won't do that perfectly, but what will empower them to do that is the fact that Christ has filled them up. Unlike so many parents, they don't need little Daniel's performance. They don't need his achievement, his obedience, or his affection. They won't try and use Daniel to plug the gaping hole in their lives. You see, Christ has done that. And so they're free to love him recklessly, without reserve, without demand, because Christ meets their thirst, not Daniel. Well, that's point one, uh, our need for water, for thirst, reminds us of a need for God. And number two, water reminds us of our need for God's cleansing. Water and cleansing. Well, whether it's washing our hair, our hot pants, our china, our chihuahua, the car, the carpet, the duvet, the dishes, it doesn't happen without water. Proof of this proposition Have you ever tried dry shampoo? It deserves only the seventh circle of hell, in my opinion. 
In fact, you could think of it like this. Life is a war on dust, dirt, grime, grease, sweat, stains. And in that war, our best ally is water. And that's there from the get-go. No doubt Marco and Sarah will remember the first time they washed Daniel in King Edward's undersized basin with its awkward dimensions and super-tepid water. And they will probably remember his fresh, ruddy flesh, barely visible under the layers of birth gunk. Beautiful, delectable, edible like a tiny or giant pink prune, but also in desperate need of a deep clean. You see, as soon as we're born, we need a bath. And ever since the earliest days of the church, Christians have understood baptism as recognizing a much more fundamental and significant truth. That as much as we need that physical bath, we need a spiritual one much more. Not the removal of dirt from our flesh, but from our souls. As the Apostle Peter says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. See, the scriptures are clear and the church has always taught and understood that children are born both guilt-ridden and sinful. I know that's not popular. I know that is heresy and yet it is indubitably true that by default, pre-programmed from the womb, our hearts gravitate towards self-love, not love of God, self-glorification, not God-glorification. And this sin, this evil that we inescapably, inexorably are drawn to, defiles and ultimately will destroy us. And you see flickers of it as, as toddlers tantrum as children squabble, as parents neglect, as voices are raised, as objects are tossed, as an icy frost settles over the home, as the marriage bed is split asunder, opposing factions on either side like a war zone. Our trajectory from cradle to grave is a bent one. Now, don't misunderstand me again, we are capable of good, of great deeds, capable of benevolence, and yes, some people are genuinely much nicer than other people. But contrary to what we're taught in school and throughout our lives, we are not basically good people. In fact, the claim, I'm basically a good person, is about as fanciful as me claiming to be a boiled egg or Mother Teresa. There's a dirt caked on and baked into us that God alone by his spirit can remove. And the removal of that dirt, the washing away of our guilt and our sin is what baptism signals, what it demonstrates. And Marco and Sarah pray and trust that God affects. Now again, don't misunderstand, this isn't kind of magic water, I've got this from the sink. But that water applied in the name of the Father and the Son and in the Spirit 
if joined with faith, then does unite us to Christ in his death, in his resurrection, in his reign. And it does that so intimately, so tightly, that his death becomes our death, his resurrection, our resurrection. His perfect, spotless righteousness becomes Daniel's, becomes my perfect, spotless righteousness. Think could put it like this. Just as Sarah and Marco on the 16th of March 2022 in King Eddie's saw fit to clean little Daniel's flesh, so too on the 31st of July 2022, they see fit to baptise Daniel, acknowledging their need for God to clean his heart. And it's a cleansing that we all need. A cleansing without which the scriptures say that we stand before God guilty and liable for eternal judgment. And if you haven't been baptised here today, let me say along with the Apostle Peter, repent and be baptised. Own your sin, your guilt, and seek the washing that God gives through his Spirit. But it's important to note as we close, and we are drawing this to a close, It's important to know that baptism cannot stand alone. It's not the end of the story, it's the start of the journey. Again, in Matthew 28, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you've done your job, disciples. No. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What does that mean? That means that today is the start of little Daniel's life of faith, of obedience and discipleship. In fact, in many ways, it started before this day, but it's not his graduation. It's more like his orientation. His baptism will remind him every day that he is dependent on the Spirit's washing, Christ's power to obey, and the Father's grace and mercy. You see, baptism is not set and forget, nor is it, to be fair, rinse and repeat. It only happens once, but every day thereafter is lived in light of it. As the great reformer Martin Luther famously had inscribed on a plaque in his room, remember your baptism. So Marco and Sarah to close. Remind little Daniel now, and when he's nine months, 19, 29, 39, and if you're still around 59, Remind him of his baptism. Remind him that it points to his need for God. That the water poured upon him points to his greater thirst that God alone can quench and his sin and guilt that God alone can cleanse. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the the joy of a newborn. Uh, We thank you for the joy that little Daniel is. We pray indeed that he may always remember his baptism. We pray that you might equip, empower Marco and Sarah, their family and this church community to to love him, to raise him knowing the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit and the fatherhood of God. In Jesus' name, amen.